Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. If I'm not mistaken, you first became enthralled with Yoko Ono when you were around nine years old in the late 60s. Yeah, I was an only child. And the reason I fell in with her is because she was an outsider as well. And I identified with her work and I just fell in love with her. What's a good introduction to her discography? I think uh, the double album, Approximately Infinite Universe, which my book title is partly named after. Let's talk more about the book, which you've called a love letter to Yoko. It's been endorsed by Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, Sean Lennon, and was recommended by Olivia Harrison, George Harrison's widow. You've said you tried to get Yoko's personality across, her cosmic consciousness. What did you mean by her cosmic consciousness? I just mean that she is in tune with the universe in a way that we aren't. There is zero bad influence that she ever had on John or the Beatles. She helped John to live his life the way he wanted to. This is Dana Spiota. This is John Ray. This is Franz Nikolai. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit hey there lit listeners welcome to another episode of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a finalist in the 2023 popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture rock is lit is a proud member of the pantheon podcast network hi i'm weird al yankovic and you're listening to the pantheon network Rock is Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this semester's Rock is Lit interns, production intern Cater Jones, and social media intern Jenna Rudolph. Find out more about me and Rock is Lit on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. 
Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the rock is lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. Today we embark on the journey through the extraordinary life and artistry of Yoko Ono as we celebrate her 91st birthday on February 18th. And who better to guide us through the mesmerizing layers of Yoko's universe than author and Yoko aficionado Madeline Baccaro. In her groundbreaking book, In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono, Madeline unravels the enigmatic tapestry of Yoko's life from her formative years in Japan to her iconic partnership with John Lennon and beyond. Get ready to be transported into the cosmic consciousness of a true visionary. This episode marks the third installment of our John Lennon-Yoko Ono series. You can catch my interview with Laurie Kay about her new memoir, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview, wherever you stream your podcasts. My interview with Mae Pang about her documentary, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, which details her 18-month love affair with John Lennon in the mid-70s, is available exclusively on my YouTube channel. I'll put links in the show notes. These three episodes focus on non-fiction works about John and Yoko, but in the spirit of Rocky's Lit's claim to fame as the first and only podcast devoted to rock fiction, I encourage you to check out some of the novels that feature them in some capacity, such as St. John Lennon by Daniel Hartwell, The John Lennon Affair by Robert S. Levinson, and John Lennon and the Mercy Street Cafe by William Hammett. You can also read my short story about John and Yoko, Shadow of Shiva, which was published in Solidago Literary Journal in 2017 on my website. But now, let's kick off this episode featuring Madeline Baccaro with a short reading from her book, In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. not for Yoko Ono, the world would be a different place in many obvious and intangible ways. Like a gentle wind, she has touched hearts, minds, and souls. Sharing her acute awareness and sensitivity, Yoko awakens us to our infinite power. She uses nature as her palette, earth, sky, and universe. Her sincerity, grace, and humor make her work relatable. It all comes from love. This book is a tribute to Yoko. It is a portrait painted in words telling her true story, including her own voice. Her extraordinary life could fill volumes as she has lived many lifetimes. These are stories about her journey as an artist and about her deliberately unfinished work to be completed in your mind. There are details about her unique works of art, film, music, and activism, from music of the mind to her scream. 
we explore Yoko's inner and outer worlds, her humor, wisdom, and far-reaching generosity. Her spiritual quality shines through. This is to acknowledge the light years that Yoko Ono Lennon has traveled in her incomparable lifetime, to console her for the tragedy, prejudice, and hatred she has endured for decades with grace and positivity, with thanks for her compassion for humanity and for planet Earth, in appreciation of her endeavors as John Lennon's other half and alone, to salute her for persevering as a warrior of peace after her comrade fell in the battlefield in admiration of her perseverance through tragedy, continuing to imagine, wish, hope, and smile, and urging us to do the same. With gratitude for her devotion, infinitely reflecting her husband's image and echoing his voice, John and Yoko's everlasting work toward a peaceful world includes all of us. If not for their meeting, we would not have known John Lennon as the person and the legend he became. John and Yoko's childhood cities, Liverpool and Tokyo, were both devastated by the bombings of World War II. This man and woman symbolically brought East and West together in peace. John and Yoko saved each other. Their incredible love story encompassed the world. They gave of themselves with truth and honesty. In their eternal union, they will always be sharing wisdom and unrelenting optimism. John and Yoko were so endearing because they perpetuated innocent and steadfast belief in what we all want for ourselves and for the world, peace and love. Their messages were sincere, clear, and simple. However, they were greatly disrespected and entirely misunderstood by many, including those in power. Before meeting, John and Yoko each had extraordinary and at times tragic lives with striking similarities. Despite their work together as highly public artists, they were extremely lonely. They independently harbored lifelong trauma from parental abandonment. John's father went off to sea. His mother handed him over to her sister who raised him. Yoko's parents did not love her for who she was, but only for being a member of the prestigious Yasuda Ono family. John was trapped in the infamy of the Beatles. Yoko's important work was widely misunderstood. Individually, they were isolated, broken, and alone. Together, they were invincible. Despite their extreme level of fame, the loneliness lingered. Yoko told NME in 1984, It's like the H.G. Wells story about someone who's moving at a great speed and the world is slow moving. It's that loneliness. That's the kind of loneliness John and I felt together. Their prior lifetimes were longer than their time together. Although it seems like an eternity, John and Yoko's earthly relationship was fleeting, a little over 12 years, shortened by a separation of 18 months. This was not much longer than the 10 years that the Beatles had been together. Yoko has now been living without John for more than 40 years since his death. John and Yoko were with us through the decades, smiling and gazing into each other's eyes and into ours. Their messages and imagery still resonate around the world. They included us on their journey together toward peace, through music, in films, in bed, in the streets, and on television, a bright white blur whizzing by, always on the go. They were our guiding light, always in our minds. Their lives were not their own. John and Yoko were messengers using fame as a tool to promote peace and to give us hope. Ultimately, the intense worldwide notoriety was suffocating. 
it tore them apart, but their eternal love always brought them back to each other. Yoko said in 1986, if the world just let us be and gave us space, we'd have been great partners. Our partnership was still great, but mainly our energies were used fighting the world from splitting us. And finally, they succeeded. They split us in this big way. We did a lot of planning, but we didn't get to do any of it. But also, what if we did? I still feel there would have been a lot of antagonism. Yoko Ono's life is an unfinished symphony. Her work is transcendent, transparent, and transient. She is creating work for us to complete in our minds, to heal us spiritually, lighting the path to a better future. She told The Mirror in April 2003, Sometimes I feel that John is telling me what to do. I don't necessarily do what he tells me, but it's nice to know that he's concerned. I have so much stuff to do for John. You see, John was the love of my life, and we're still working together. Some people think that I might be overshadowed, but I'm in the shade of this beautiful tree, and the tree is protecting me. Yoko knows things that we don't know. She's certain that one day there will be peace on earth, and lives her life as if it's undoubtedly so. We'd be foolish not to believe her. Like animals who sense danger before it happens, she knows. The universe has let her in on some profound secrets which she is sharing with us all. She said in 2010, I believe that everybody has superpower in their subconscious. I try to bring it out from them. If you have been misinformed, you will learn the truth about Yoko. If you appreciate her, you will sing along with me. You will sing the wind and hear the silence. Her meaning and intent will come to light. You will see negative space in a positive way and will be touched by her wit and wisdom, her genius and whimsy. She is only telling us the truth. She said in 1962, I cannot stand the fact that everything is the accumulation of distortion owing to a slanted view. I want the truth. I want to feel the truth by any means. I cannot trust the manipulation of my consciousness. She eliminates the boundaries between art and life and considers the word art to be a verb rather than a noun. More people are becoming wise to the truth. They are beginning to understand why John loved Yoko. This is evident in headlines such as the one in New York Magazine in 2015, Yoko Ono and the Myth That Deserves to Die. Yoko uses her entire existence to communicate, her mind, body, and soul, as in this piece from her book Grapefruit, Blood Peace, Use Your Blood to Paint, Keep Painting Until You Faint, Keep Painting Until You Die. Her work is far from finished. Yoko's universe is infinite. It's all in your mind. This is Madeline Bocaro, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. 
I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Thanks for joining me, Madeline. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I sort of feel like I've inadvertently created a John and Yoko miniseries in season three of the podcast because I interviewed May Pang about her recent documentary, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, and your friend, Laurie Kay, about her new memoir, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, my life leading up to John Lennon's last interview. And now I'm talking to you about your book on Yoko Ono. What I need to do now is rope Sean Lennon into talking to me. Have you heard about the film he produced that came out last fall? It's called War is Over, inspired by the music of John and Yoko. Yeah. Yeah, he got an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Short Film. Very lucky. Very nice. I want to talk to you about the book and Yoko, of course. Let's go back first. Let's get some background on you. If I'm not mistaken, you first became enthralled with Yoko Ono when you were around nine years old in the late 60s. I'm guessing you got some raised eyebrows from your friends when you outed yourself as a Yoko fan. (laughs) 
The thing is, I didn't have friends. I was nine, 10 years old. You know, I was an only child. And the reason I fell in with her is because she was an outsider as well. And I identified with her work and I just fell in love with her. And at the time in America, we really didn't know how much she was not liked in England. You know, they were really vicious to her over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And little by little, I come to realize how much grief she was given and how much Mm. John had to defend her and how much they both had to put up with together. Tell me about how that fascination with Yoko Ono began. Well, I saw a picture of her in Time magazine. My aunt's had this magazine open on the counter. And I said, well, look at this woman. She's in front of a picture of a film that she had made. And it was of bottoms walking on a treadmill. And I thought, wow, this is great because every adult in my life was very serious. My parents were older. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. Somebody this age can do something so quirky and fun. I kept the clipping. And from then on, I kept everything I ever read about her. So that enabled me to have an archive that I could go to when I was compiling this book. And it was kept chronologically, thank goodness, because I could go and pinpoint a quote in a month and a year that I wanted. And it all came together that way. How did this interest in Yoko evolve from fandom from afar to actually having a relationship with her? We were pen pals at first. I when they moved into the Dakota. I started writing since I had an address and she surprisingly wrote back because I was writing to her about her work and, you know, it wasn't about Beatles. And I was asking her, I think this is the meaning of this. Am I right? And she said, Oh my God, you're right. And, you know, she was really sweet. And then years later, a friend of mine, after John had been killed, my friend Lisa told me, you know, you love Yoko so much. I think she really needs to meet you. And she used to hang out at the Dakota waiting for John and Yoko to come out and got their autographs. She said, let's go there and she'll come out. And I don't know, I was kind of apprehensive, but I went with my friend and we went on Yoko's birthday so she would know I wasn't there just as a Beatles fan. And I brought her a present and she recognized my name and my handwriting. She's like, oh my God, it's you. And she gave me a big hug. And she was talking about an exhibition that she was having of John's artwork that week. And she said, oh, you should come to this. And from then on, I started going to all of her, you know, even her own artwork exhibition openings and her concerts and backstage. And that's how it evolved, kind of. That's incredible that she wrote back, that you were able to connect with her. And you've spent a lot of time with her through the years. Yeah, like not hours and hours, but backstage at these shows, maybe for an hour or at the exhibitions and just mostly communicating by letters. That was the most precious thing. And I just would ask her things that no one else would ask. Do you remember the birthday present you brought her that day? Oh, I think I brought her a crystal ball that time. Oh, wow. I love it. Yoko's upbringing was unique and somewhat challenging. She came from a wealthy family in Japan. Her home life was very disciplined but stifling. For example, she wasn't supposed to show emotion or smile, and she didn't even meet her father until she was almost three years old. Talk more about her childhood and young adult years. Well, it wasn't just a wealthy family. They were one of the three wealthiest families in Japan, a billionaire banking family. Mm. And they were all cultured. They spoke 
several languages. They were poets, painters, musicians. Her father was a classical pianist, and he had to abandon that when he became a banker and married into her family, who was wealthier than his. She was raised by servants. Her mother was a socialite, so she was always out on the town. Her father was living in America, and she was served at this gigantic table by servants who had to call her Miss because she was higher in rank than they were. They would just watch her fall because they were told not to pick her up because they would muddle her brain. Oh, my God. There's all these strange customs and perceptions over there. By the time she was 12 years old, she had two younger siblings, and the American bombing of Tokyo occurred, and she and her siblings were evacuated to the countryside to a farmhouse that her mother thought she had paid for them to stay there, but it was in a lot worse shape than they had expected. There were holes in the roof. There was nothing there. The servant that they were sent with abandoned them. And they had only like silk kimono and jewelry to trade for rice to eat. And they were starving. And the people of that poor suburban village didn't particularly care for them because they could tell, here come these wealthy people. And they were throwing stones at them and they were refusing them food. And Yoko had to pick mulberries off the trees for her siblings to eat. It was a nightmare, pretty much. And then she gets home to Tokyo, and her whole city is bombed out and destroyed. Oh, my gosh. In the years after the bombing, and she's going through this terrible trauma, how did they pick up the pieces and move on from there? Well, she returned to her family. Their homes weren't destroyed, thank goodness. And she goes back right into the prestigious school that she had been going to. It's near the Imperial Palace with the emperor's two sons, one of whom had a crush on her. (laughs) Then she goes on to become the first female philosophy student at her college. But she's very lonely. She's not relating to anyone. She always feels that she's got this otherness and a special way of looking at the world, which she really does. Yeah. You know, she sees like negative space. She's very intuitive. And she's on a different wavelength than most people. Her parents moved to America when she was 19 to Scarsdale, and she ends up taking classes at Sarah Lawrence. And her professor says, look, you know, you're really not fitting in with anyone here. You should go to New York and search out these composers in the avant-garde, you know, John Cage and, Mm -hmm. you know, Lamont Young and all these people. And she did. And she ended up creating a performance space for all of them to congregate, which was not available in the city at that time. There was only jazz clubs. There wasn't anything for them. Right. So she kind of did the first meltdown of of New York City. Had she already gotten married by then? See, I didn't know about this first marriage that she had until I read your book. I knew that she'd been married to Tony Cox, an American Mm -hmm. entrepreneur with whom she had a daughter, Kyoko, and of course, John. I didn't know she'd been married before then. Yes. Tell me about that first marriage. 
So her first marriage is she gets to New York, she meets John Cage, and one of John Cage's collaborators was Toshi Ichinagi, who was born in the same year and the same week as Yoko in Japan, in Tokyo. Mm. They hit it off, I guess, you know, and they understood each other's artwork. He was a musician, but he was pretty avant-garde himself. And he remained like one of the most renowned musicians in Japan until his death a couple of years ago. They still always respected each other, but they divorced because she was in a man's world of art and music. Everybody yeah. was a man and she wasn't getting any recognition. She got very depressed and she went back to Turkey all dejected. Now, so. wasn't there a suicide attempt around age 19? It was right at the point I'm at where she went back to Tokyo and she was in a hospital. And that's when uh, Tony Cox was aware of her work and he was looking for her. He finds that she's back in Tokyo. So he goes to this mental hospital and he gets her released. And that's how she ended up working again in New York and later in London. And he was her promoter and they had the child's Kyoko. And of course, she and John met each other, got together while she was still married to Tony. But before we get to the John part, let's talk about Yoko, the musician. Because of her unconventional approach to music, I don't think a lot of people realize that she was actually trained in classical piano and opera. And you mentioned earlier that her father played piano. Her mom played several musical instruments and painted. Can you elaborate on her musical background and how it shaped her style? especially her distinctive vocal style. Sure. Well, she was classically changed as a young child. The biggest influence on her was an assignment she had to write the notation of the sounds of the day. And some of the sounds were the sound of birds chirping. Now she can hear, and we just hear it in the background, but she was literally trying to transcribe this. And she said, wait a minute, there's something wrong with the way we score music. So instead of trying to write the notes, she's like, you can't capture this. So she wrote on the musical staff to be played with the accompaniment of the birds singing at dawn. Wow. And that was the beginning of her instructional artworks, just writing what you should think about. Mm -hmm. And then the, the vocalizations, a lot of that comes from no theater and kabuki theater and Okinawan folk music. She was listening to stuff that was way out there. She wasn't listening to pop singles on a turntable. She grew up in the (laughs) 30s and 40s, you know. Uh, Once in the servants' quarters, there were these women talking, and she was told not to go near there because her mother didn't want her to hear any adult conversations. But she did. She went over there, and they happened to be talking about childbirth. And this woman said, yeah, I saw my aunt giving childbirth, and she was screaming like this, and she was vocalizing. And Yoko always remembered that. That's the sound that she thought was more expressive than words. Mm -hmm. She could say so much more with that. But as far as her music before she met John, there was not really recorded music by Yoko. She did appear with Ornette Coleman in 1968. She was making little tapes and things on her own, but she was all over the place. She was doing events, unconventional paintings, and music was just kind of, she was dabbling in it. But when she met John, that, that's when it kicked in. And when she was making music, her parents never came to any of her shows, did they? No, they pretty much disowned her. Mm-hmm. When she was in America, they never came here to see her, that's for sure. But even in Japan, they never participated in anything she did. 
All right, let's get to John. So they met in the London Art Gallery, 1966, married 69. John's songs about Yoko are well known. Now, in your research, what did you discover about the mutual influence they had on each other's lives and artistic expressions? Well, they came from very similar backgrounds. John was abandoned by his parents. They grew up lonely. You know, John always felt like he was some kind of genius, too. He always felt more intelligent than the kids around him. And they had this bond, you know, and they understood each other completely. They nurtured each other. They worked together in every way possible. They even kind of traded places. John was becoming more artsy and Yoko was becoming more of a musician. And they just fell in together that way. And I don't think either of them would have survived if they hadn't met each other. Yeah, you wrote in the intro of your book, individually, they were isolated, broken and alone. Together, they were invincible. And that's quite a bond. It was. And, you know, no matter what, they couldn't be separated. The whole, they spent most of their energy trying to stay together because the world was trying to tear them apart. And it's unfortunate that they had to waste so much time feeling that way because they were all about just sharing their love with the world and achieving world peace and, and having everyone be as happy as they were. But they never stopped loving each other, even after their separation, even after John's death. Yoko protects his legacy. She's constantly releasing his music, and she's very good to the fans. You know, she wrote to me, but she wrote to almost everybody she heard from, you know, whether it was just an autograph or whatever. But she answered so, so, so many letters and cared about so many people, very charitable, you know, a wonderful human being. You mentioned the separation, so let's talk about that. Because as I mentioned earlier, I interviewed May Pang about her documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, but it presents a very different perspective on John and Yoko's relationship. What do you make of that 18-month lost weekend that they had? Well, it happened because John had his first infidelity to Yoko the night Nixon won the election. He went off the deep end. There were a lot of things building up to that. His album Sometime in New York City got bad reviews. The concert that I attended at age 14, which was... Oh my God, you were there. I was there and that got panned. You know, John was proud of his work. He never got panned before like that. He was devastated. So he sleeps with a girl in another room and at a party where Yoko was. And Yoko was just devastated. And they were together 24-7. And Yoko said, that's it. Need a break. She sends him out <laughs> wherever he goes. It's up to him, right? And he yeah. sends him with May Pang, which was their assistant of several mm-hmm. years. And she trusted May. She said, May is a nice person. She said, could you be with John and make sure he's okay? You know, May was very young. She was 22. She fell in love with John and he fell in love with her. And she took very good care of him out there as best she could because he was out of control. And he came back alive. So thank God for May. 
She has her own perspective on Yoko. I think she really went overboard with creating like this evil picture. (laughs) I'm sure she was egged on to do that as well by the producers, but it is what it is. John loved her, no doubt. People make it like he was going to spend the rest of his life with her. Maybe he would have if Yoko didn't take him back. But all his time there, he was screaming. I've spoken to people who were out there at the time. And he was just begging Yoko on the phone every day. Can I come back now? When can I come back? I didn't realize Yoko's album, Feeling the Space, came out while she and John were separated. It's a very feminist album. And I didn't realize that, again, while they were separated, she was performing so much during this time. I think people have the impression that when he was with May in L.A., Yoko was just sort of pining away and not really producing much of her own work. I have a very different impression of that period now. Yeah, well, she did that album and she did a tour of Japan where she was welcomed like the Beatles at Shea Stadium. I mean, she's loved over there. And she did some shows in New York City at Kenny's Castaways, all sold out shows. You know, she wanted to do her own work. And John, at that point, was a clinging, needy, drunk, you know, like whatever. He was <laughs> He was just out of control and she needed her space. And that's what she did. She, she made the best of it until he eventually came back. For the Yoko music naysayer, one who only thinks of that rather jolting performance she gave during the Chuck Berry-John Lennon live TV duet, what's a good introduction to her discography? I think uh, the double album Approximately Infinite Universe, which my book title is partly named after, is a double album and it spans every genre. It's got Elephant's Memory on there, great band. And some gorgeous ballads. If Barbara Streisand had sung them, they would have been number one hits. Gorgeous lyrics, some humor in there, some feminist songs. It stands the test of time because it sounds current even now. I think that's the one I would go for. I love the avant-garde stuff as well. Yeah. But most people didn't even know that she had any structured songs at all. I love Death of Samantha from Approximately oh. Infinite Universe. Such a great song. And did she record that like two or three days after that infidelity incident that you were talking about with John? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of about, she says, the death of your soul. You know, she yeah. was crushed. People say Oh, there's so many songs that I love. Talking to the Universe. Oh, yeah. I love that. Did she do that album with Sean? Yes. Sean was her musical arranger. He toured with her. His friends were in her band. And, you know, he was young. And she says, what? You friends? I don't know. But sure enough, he showed her. He knew, he's her biggest fan. But I took the albums and I, I wrote about every album and every song. But I didn't shove it in the back like a discography. It's everyone is placed within the story where it was recorded. Because it all relates to her life at the time. Yeah. Now, some other songs. I'm just going to throw some out there and get your take on them. Mrs. Lennon from 1971. 
It was done around the time of Imagine. Her album Fly came out around that same time. And I call it like Imagine in a minor key. It's just very mellow, but very uh, eerie in a way. And she's singing about being sublimated as John's wife when she had always been her own woman, you know. The way the title came about, they were at Tittenhurst Park, the big white house they lived in. The gardener came up to her through a long, long, long passageway, and he was handing her the flowers, and he said, these are for you, Mrs. Lennon. And it was the first time anybody had called her Mrs. Lennon. And she, mm. it just had a strange ring to her ear, you know? She says, oh. And that's how she came up with the song. But it's very intense. Uh-huh. And I'm jumping around in time here. I'm just pulling out songs that I like. Like, I don't know why, 1981. So John has been killed. The album is um, Season of Glass. Yes. The album cover has John's bloody glasses and then a glass of water that, depending on your perspective, is either half empty or half full. And that song, when she gets to the part where she just cries out, you bastards hate us, hate me, we had everything. It is so powerful. It's chilling, and it's one of the only times she really defined it. You know, she she would scream, and she would have jarring lyrics and all, but she would never really call it out. But this time, she just had to. That's why she put the glasses on the cover. She was just obviously devastated, but it wasn't just the, the shooter that killed John or took him away from her. It was a lot of people are responsible for that. Yes, I'm a Witch. Mm -hmm. Love that song. The 2007, I think it was first recorded in, for 1974's Unreleased, A Story. Yes. But it actually came out in 2007. That is fantastic. Yeah. And a lot of the songs on Season of Glass were written much earlier for that album that never came out, A Story. It was going to be called Half a Wind Song, and it came out later. And, you know, the B-side of Walking on Thin Ice, it happened. Those lyrics are chilling. It's almost as if the story unfolded right before her eyes in 73, but she didn't catch it. Yes. And there's a whole chapter in the book called Premonitions about these kind of things. I want to throw out one more song. I love Paper Shoes, that Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band album. There's some things on there that you can see how the band Boredoms was inspired by Yoko's style. You can see how Sonic Youth was. You can see how Bjork was. That's the really avant-garde album that I gravitate toward of her work. And it came out in 1970. There's no vocals on that. It's just fantastic. Yeah, there's some phrases and all, but you're blowing me away with Paper Shoes because that's one of my favorites as well. And of course, that album is not very much listened to generally. And it's... I was blasting it earlier. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so wonderful. It's funny because the sessions for that album, they're on a Blu-ray disc and shoved in the back of the John Lennon Plastic on a Band release from a couple of years ago. And the sessions sound like music, instruments being played, whatever. But the beauty of what is on that album is the treatment, the echoing, the sound effects, the yeah. droning uh, loop. And, and it makes it otherworldly. 
it's incredible what was done. And she said it took them a really long time. And they would take a tape and stretch it out like across two or three rooms and work on it that way. There was no Pro Tools. There was nothing, you know, and this is like she was sampling herself, you know, she was doing all these cut-ups and it's so beautiful. I'm Yoko Ono. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So we were talking about filling the space, being all about feminism. Her mother may have been this socialite, a strong woman, but more of a socialite. Her grandmother was a staunch feminist who went to a French school in Japan and was part of an important feminist group called Blue Steps. That I found fascinating because this has got to be in the 1800s, very, very early 1900s. Very early. And and not only that, but she had two aunts who married into the family, Russian, and they were sisters. And well, one of them married into the family, the other one just lived with them. And they were sisters. One was a renowned violinist and one was a renowned painter. Mm. And Yoko learned a lot from both of them. They were incredible women and there were biannual exhibitions of their work. And at one time in the same city, there was one of Varvara and one of Yoko in the same place. So that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Yoko has faced so much criticism throughout her career. How does she handle that kind of criticism? Yeah, I always would cry when anybody said anything horrible about her. Until one day we're backstage at a show and one of the songs on her album was called It's Time for Action. And she was reading a review and it said, it's time for aspirin. And I never saw anybody laugh as hard as she did at that. It's like, okay, if you're laughing, I can laugh too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this would devastate me, but it is funny. But yeah, she just said it was like, uh, a, it was like acupuncture to her. She said, I get all these little stabs, but I kind of deflected them and, and they ended up healing me in the end. And she's like, I don't know who I would be if all that didn't happen. Mm. Given all that and her background, what she survived during World War II, how does she stay so positive? 
I think it was a coping mechanism. And little by little, as those times became further and further in the past, you know, she learned to live in the present and be as positive as possible, work in her own vacuum and not pay attention to much of what people would say. What are some common misconceptions about her? Well, the real Yoko is basically a humanitarian, a communicator, a truth seeker, a truth teller. There is zero bad influence that she ever had on John or the Beatles. If anything, she nurtured John. She helped John to live his life the way he wanted to. I think that's the biggest misconception. And all these people who go around saying they love John Lennon, but they hate Yoko. It doesn't make any sense. And they're just doing themselves a disservice by, first of all, carrying around all this anger for someone, which is based on lies, and then spreading those lies and believing them. It's not right. Do you think Peter Jackson's recent Beatles documentary, Get Back, cleared up or confirmed misconceptions about her? The people who thought badly of her harp on that and they say, why did she have to be there at all? And, you know, look at that. And the ones that are a little more open-minded will say, oh, look, she wasn't interfering. She wasn't even speaking up. She was just knitting. She was reading. She's thinking about her next artwork. You know, she Mm. wasn't really wanting to be right there all the time. John wanted her there. And that's why she was. There's another female artist right now who's experiencing a lot of backlash. How do you think Yoko would view or respond to all the hoopla that Taylor Swift is currently experiencing? She would just keep saying, you're beautiful, keep doing what you're doing. And here's a funny example. You know, most of the flack that Yoko got was because she was Asian. Uh Uh-huh. She was foreign. She was not wearing makeup. She was not a blonde bombshell. But look at Taylor. She's a beautiful woman, yet they're still trashing her. And millions of people love her music, but it can't stop these other people from speaking negatively. It's really weird to me. I just shut up. If you don't like it, go (laughs) listen to something else. I mean, people went nuts. Well, they're nuts now because there's a man involved. Of course, yes. So weird. Let's talk more about the book, which you've called A Love Letter to Yoko. It's been endorsed by Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, Sean Lennon, and was recommended by Olivia Harrison, George Harrison's widow. You had to have been freaking out when you got those endorsements, those recommendations. Yeah, I mean, I knew that Sean would love it. I mean, obviously, it's about his mother and it's the truth, which is rare. And he's quoted in it a lot because he has a lot of insight. He would have never known what production was if she didn't show him his way around the studio. He watched her make records. He watched her produce and arrange. He understands her mind and, and how it works. He's her biggest fan. So, of course, I knew he would love it. But when I finally got it 
to him and he responded. I was so happy. A lot of her colleagues are loving it. A lot of musicians and poets, especially because she's very poetic. And a lot of the quotes I have from her are just simple, even some of her tweets and things. And I consider them to be like little messages from fortune cookies that are much more powerful, (laughs) you know, much more useful than the ones in the cookie, you know, just things that you can really use to see the world in a different light, like that the invisible things are what's important. And like, history isn't what happens, it's the more important thing is what didn't happen. And some people say they're going to pick up the book and read a chapter tonight, but they'll get through a page and they'll say, wait a minute, I read this page five times. It's so amazing. I never thought of this. Or, you know, they're just keeping it by their bedside and picking it up every night, even if they're finished with it, just for some inspiration. This book has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. And you self-published it, so you get to keep all the money. As a writer, I'm going, yay. Yay, when the money starts coming, like right now, you know, it's so, the things you have to do and set up and pay for just to sell a book, it's unbelievable. So maybe one day I'll break even, but that's not my goal. (laughs) My goal is to get her story out into the world. I don't know. I kind of adopted her as my family and, you know, I would do anything for her. You self-published it by choice. I bet you could have sold this to any number of major publishers. But as I understand it, the ones that were interested wanted you to cut the manuscript down to like 250 pages. And there was just no way that you were willing to do that. Exactly. And then some of them said, we'll do a part one and part two. And I'll say, well, part two will probably have no Beatles or John Lennon in it. And nobody will want part two. It's all a story. It's all together. But John is throughout it. I mean, really, he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just wanted to do it my way. I mean, the format is kind of odd, but people love it. You know, I didn't want to do it just like a traditional biography because it's not. I just wanted her spirit to shine through. It's such a big book in myriad ways. What was the process like researching and writing it? Well, that's funny. People say research, but I had all the information. I grew with her. I grew from a child loving her and and absorbing everything she ever said and did. And I'd been writing about her a lot too. Some was for publication and some wasn't. I had this archive of material to reference. During COVID, my boyfriend gave me software and said, you know, you can dump all your Word documents in here and arrange it. And and I put all the yoga documents in and I realized I had a 500-page book. So I spent two more years putting it together and fleshing it out and sequencing and adding, and it came together like a jigsaw puzzle. You've said you tried to get Yoko's personality across, her essence, her cosmic consciousness. That's a quote. What did you mean by her cosmic consciousness? I love that. I just mean that she is in tune with the universe in a way that we aren't. We go out our door and we see our neighborhood and our post office and Maybe we take a trip to Europe, but she's seeing a billion universes. You know, she's just thinking beyond anything we could ever comprehend. And she also looks at the invisible things and and nature, and she uses nature throughout all of her work as well, and that everything in nature has a soul, and that the roots of the trees are communicating with each other underground, which is scientifically proven. And but. Back then, she was speaking about this. Like when she was a kid, she knew this was happening. 
and she wanted to plant different seeds together so that she could get different fruits hanging on the same tree. She's just very, very advanced, let's say. By the time this episode comes out, she'll be 91 years old. You put this book out, I think, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to imagine you figuring out what to put on the cover because she's had so many different incarnations. And so I love that the cover you went with is this image of her that could be pretty much at any age with this dove on her shoulder. And it came from a freaking greeting card you found online. Exactly. And the artist's name is Kat McInnes. She does greeting cards, wrapping paper. She's very whimsical. I think she does some children's books. But she's Australian. She has a website. And yeah, I asked her if I could use it. And I was so happy. She's, she was thrilled. And she said, you know, I tweeted this out when I drew it. And Yoko wrote back that she loved it. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> yeah, because there's so much about Yoko that's light and sky. Right. That image really captures that. One picture wouldn't have done it, you know, one from one era. No. It's about her whole life. What lessons or messages from Yoko do you hope readers take away after reading this? I just hope we realize that we're misplacing our values. You know, we're focusing on things that are trivial and we should be doing so much more. And of course, we, there should be world peace. I mean, she believes that it can happen. What has to happen is everybody in the world has to think the same thought in the same way. And that's very, very hard to achieve. But if we did, it would happen. And they believe that. And that was their message throughout their lives and how they wanted to be remembered. John always used to say is John and Yoko, who laughed and made the world smile with us. And they were just all about positivity. What's her life like now? You know, her health isn't that great right now. And she's pretty much quiet and retired. <laughs> so she's just up at upstate. She's left the Dakota. So she's upstate at the farm. And What's her relationship with Sean like now? Oh, as close as ever. Super close. But do you know if she has any connection with Julian? Because that relationship is notoriously complicated. Yes, everything is sorted out. They're fine. Sean and Julian are very, very close. I just saw on Twitter that Yoko has an exhibition at the Tate Modern in London starting February 15. That spans more than seven decades and is the largest exhibition celebrating key moments in her career. This is amazing. She's 91 years old and has this incredible exhibition. It's the greatest thing. And there was one at, at Museum of Modern Art in New York in the summer of 2015, which she had actually staged an exhibition there in her mind in 1971. And it was called Yoko Ono One Woman Show. And she implemented a few things there. And the museum directors called her and said, hey, what's happening? People are saying you're having a show here. And she said, oh, it's okay. It's just in my mind. <laughs> but then in 2015, it came to be a reality. And it was called the same thing, Yoko Ono One Women's Show. And I spent the whole summer there. It was fantastic. When's the last time you heard from her? It was around then, you know, around 2016, 17. She's winding it down, I think. Yes, I would imagine so. Well, Madeline, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. The book is In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. So where can folks go to find out more about you and buy the book? So the book is on Amazon for those overseas. 
because that's the best shipping cost, I think. And um, it's available through me with the option of having it signed. And there's a hardcover version that's gorgeous. And that's only available at conceptualbooks.com. And the book's website is inyourmindbook.com. You can read the reviews there. You can see a lot of pictures. There's some excerpts and all, a lot of other interviews I've done. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks again, Madeline. Thank you. Great questions. There's no option. Get alive. Stay alive. In every way. Every day. Thanks for tuning in, lip listeners. If you missed my interviews with Laurie Kay and May Pang, check the show notes for links to those two installments in our John Lennon Yoko Ono series. If you're enjoying the show, drop a five-star rating and comment on your podcast platform of choice and subscribe to Rock is Lit so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes with such fabulous rock novelists as Constant Squires, Stacey Lane Wilson, and Jeff Jackson. Until next time, Keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. <laughs>